What's next? This is a question we're all having to ask and answer more frequently. I'm Jenny Blake, your host of the Pivot Podcast and author of Pivot, The Only Move That Matters is Your Next One. For show notes from this episode, visit jennyblake.me slash podcast. If change is the only constant, then let's get better at it. Here we go. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Pivot Podcast. I'm really excited to have Dr. Kelly McGonigal here today. She is a health psychologist and lecturer at Stanford University and a pioneer in the field of science help, which I love. I've been a big fan of Kelly and her work for many years, and we've been lucky enough to cross paths in person. Her mission is to translate insights from psychology and neuroscience into practical strategies that support personal well-being and strengthen communities. Kelly is the author of several books, including the international bestseller, The Willpower Instinct, and her latest book, The Upside of Stress, Why Stress is Good for You and How to Get Good at It. Her 2013 TED Talk, How to Make Stress Your Friend, is one of the most viewed TED Talks of all time with 10 million views. Kelly also works with the Stanford Center for Compassion and Altruism. She co-authored the Stanford Compassion Cultivation Training and studies how social connection can promote health, happiness, and resilience. In her free time, she's a passionate advocate for animal rescue and group fitness as a way to create positive social connections, joy, and self-compassion. Kelly, welcome to the show. Thank you. It is so good to talk to you again. Yay. Thanks for being here. (laughs) Okay, listeners, we're tossing the first question over to you. This is from the introduction to Kelly's book, The Upside of Stress. If you had to sum up how you feel about stress, which statement would be more accurate? A, stress is harmful and should be avoided, reduced, and managed. Or B, stress is helpful and should be accepted, utilized, and embraced. In the intro to the book, Kelly says, five years ago, I would have chosen A without a moment's hesitation. I'm a health psychologist, and through all my training in psychology and medicine, I got one message loud and clear. Stress is toxic. And the reason I wanted to bring Kelly on to talk about this is because she completely debunks this myth, and a lot of people who are going through a pivot feel stressed. Not only that, a lot of people who are high achievers experience some level of stress. And Kelly, what you're saying is that this message, stress is toxic, might almost be as toxic as stress itself. Can you explain? Yes. So one of the things I'm really interested in is how do we react when life is difficult or is unexpected? And it turns out that if you believe that life is supposed to be easy, it's supposed to go as planned, it's supposed to be comfortable and predictable that when life is difficult or stressful, you're more likely to think things like, I can't handle this, or I'm not enough. Uh, I'm alone in this. I'm the only one going through this. It's not supposed to be this way. And that's actually one of the, the things that I'm most interested in is how we can cultivate a sense that actually, no matter what's happening in this moment, I can handle it. Uh, this is real and it's okay that this is happening and I'm not alone in it. And it had not really occurred to me that this message that I had learned and that I was you know, out in the world promoting that stress is toxic, that it might actually contribute to the sense of, I can't handle this, it shouldn't be this way, and I'm alone. Um, and yet 
that's what a lot of the recent research on stress shows, that how we think about stress has a profound effect on how we respond in stressful moments. And that there actually is a way of thinking about stress that makes it more likely that in those difficult moments, what we sense is, I can handle this, I'm strong enough, I have resources, I'm not alone, I can connect to others, and that this could be a catalyst for something positive that I could learn or I could grow or I could change in a way that's meaningful to me. And I have to say that it really is this motivation that has inspired me to just go ahead and embrace this counterintuitive idea because you know, there's an argument you could make about stress being harmful and some forms of stress being harmful. I mean, we, we can all find a story somewhere of the stress-induced heart attack. Uh, we know that we don't always like how it feels to be stressed. And what I'm interested in is can we acknowledge, okay, that's true, and there's always going to be some part of us that... Uh, in moments of stress, wishes things were a little bit easier and more comfortable, uh, that, that would prefer to avoid things like loss and pain and difficulty. And at the same time, that we could find the courage to respond to stress in a way that really helps us get closer to the goals and the roles and the relationships that matter most to us. Um, and, and this book is about the research and the practical strategies for choosing this kind of courageous approach or, or mindset towards stress that can profoundly change how stress affects you. And in the book, I mentioned a couple of studies that, that really radically woke me up. One was a study I talk about in the TED Talk that... Um, found that stress only seemed to be increasing the risk of mortality among people who held the belief that stress was really harmful for their health and that somehow among people who had very stressful lives, um, they were the most likely to be alive at the end of a longitudinal study if they didn't hold the belief at the beginning of the study that stress was harming their health. And you see this sort of stress mindset effect across so many different outcomes that People are more susceptible to burnout if they believe that their anxiety is debilitating. But people who view their anxiety as a source of motivation or useful information about what matters to them, they seem to be protected from burnout, even in very stressful careers or situations. Uh, and, and you see this sort of effect that kind of invites us to make a choice about how are we going to uh, interpret what it means when our heart is pounding or when we start to experience self-doubt. Do we think it means that we need to get out, that we're falling apart, that it's all too much? Or are we going to make the choice to think, okay, my heart is pounding because my heart is in it, because I care, because my body is getting ready to rise to this challenge? And can I choose to, to make contact with my own resources and the resources in my community, the people who care about me, so that my response to the situation is one that, uh, that does get me closer to what I care about. I find this all so fascinating. And even you define stress as something you care about is at stake. A lot of times stress is because we are working on things we care about or we're dealing with people that we care about and that not rejecting it outright is really important because as you say, it's inextricably linked with meaning and purpose and personal growth. Yeah. So, so for example, if you think that stress is toxic, right? You've heard stress will kill your immune cells and your brain cells. And, and when you're stressed out, you need to immediately become less stressed or you're setting yourself up for disaster. Um, that tends to lead people to do things that are really counterproductive. Like I need to get drunk or I need to go shopping or I need to procrastinate. Uh, it, it's sort of like this desperate desire to just be less stressed in this moment because we fear the actual state 
of being engaged, of being worried, of caring. Uh, states that actually are there to drive us to do things. One of the, the um, so you've already heard me say that, you know, when your heart is pounding, you could choose to view it as your heart being in it and your heart giving you energy, two things that are true, right? It's physically true and it's psychologically true. But another thing that the people often don't understand, something as simple as loneliness. Loneliness is a biological state. It is your brain and your body trying to push you to connect with others. And it's kind of like hunger. Your body will make you hungry if you haven't eaten in a while because you need to nourish yourself. And loneliness is a kind of stress response that is saying like, you who talk to someone who cares about you, don't be stuck, you know, alone trying to do this all yourself. Um, and sometimes, again, we think of that as just being this toxic state. We don't want to feel it's all too much. And we eat our way out of it or shop our way out of it or, you know, binge watch something on Netflix out of it instead of listening to the signal behind the stress. And that's another, um, that's another sort of part of this message about stress is that rather than immediately try to escape it, can you listen for the wisdom in it? Because if you always think it's just a state to escape, you sometimes don't get the right message. Sometimes stress is telling us you need to make a change because this isn't sustainable or it's not healthy for you. Sometimes the stress is a signal to double down and engage more because this is the most meaningful opportunity you have right now. Uh, and you don't know what the signal is until you're willing to listen to it before you immediately try to suppress it or um, escape it. I thought it was so interesting how you cite one study where people are giving presentations and they're really nervous. Mm -hmm. And those that had the mindset intervention to believe that, hey, you might feel stressed and that's okay. It's going to improve your performance. That, that it's not that the stress chemicals in their body were any lower, but they performed much better. It didn't affect their performance. In fact, it enhanced it. Yes. And so, so what's actually interesting is that study and a number of studies have shown that how you think about stress changes your stress response. It doesn't make you less stressed. It actually does change the physical stress response, but not by making people calm. So, you know, just sort of like down and dirty stress response 101. Everyone thinks that the stress response is fight, flight, or freeze. Like the only way that your brain and body can respond to a challenge is to panic and become paralyzed or to punch someone or to run away. Um, as if like evolution is that stupid that that's the only skill set <laughs> we would have. Right, but that's the way we talk about it. That's it's what's true. Is. That's what I thought it was too until you, I read your book. If you are in that state, it might impair your performance. It might make it more difficult to connect with people you care about. Um, but there are other stress responses. And one is a challenge response. And a challenge response is kind of like what happens in your body when you go for a run. Your body and brain are like, okay, we need energy. It's time to act. It's time to perform. And so your heart pounds stronger and faster. Your blood vessels, they actually expand rather than contract so that you get more blood flow to your muscles and to your brain. Uh, you have less inflammation than in a fight, flight, or freeze response because you're no longer in that sort of danger mode. So your body doesn't think it needs to go into a state of inflammation. Uh, there are all sorts of positive changes that happen. You actually have lots of adrenaline and testosterone, things that give you power and energy. Uh, and the study that you mentioned that choosing to view your stress as uh, not a problem, but as a resource, as a source of energy, it actually shifts people from a threat response, that fight, flight, or freeze. It actually shifts them into a challenge response. You can see it in their heart response. You can see it in their immune system and inflammation. And you can see it in how they talk about their stress. They actually feel more confident. 
and they do better. So you mentioned the speech study, but this has been done in all sorts of contexts. Students taking exams and the students score better. Uh, people engaging in negotiations and getting better outcomes in negotiations. One of my favorite was a karaoke competition, and they actually were more on pitch. That's an objective Whoa. measure. Athletes, uh, athletes perform better in competitions. Um, almost any situation you can think about. And, and again, I, I think that this is it's one of the most simple things that we can do, even though it, I, I understand that it takes a, it's a bit of a leap of faith that suddenly if you're, if you spent like me, I spent decades thinking stress was the enemy to suddenly be like, Oh, but maybe it's not, maybe stress is a friend that I can rely on. Okay. I realize that that, it, that does require, um, it is a leap of faith to start seeing what would happen, what would happen in my body, what would happen in my mind, what would happen in my heart if I choose to consider that in moments that are difficult, when I'm feeling self-doubt or feeling overwhelmed or feeling angry, if I open myself up to that possibility, what happens? And in the book, I talk about all sorts of mindset resets like that. Uh, it's not just viewing stress as energy, but one of the other most powerful mindset resets we can take is to view stress as an opportunity to learn and grow, to understand that part of the biology of stress is it makes you more plastic, not like Barbie, but like, mm -hmm. like the plasticity of, um, I can be changed by my environment and by my experience. So when you're experiencing high levels of stress hormones, your brain becomes more plastic. It's more ready to learn from experience. Your senses become more open and more engaged with your environment so that you're better able to, to notice what's happening and respond to it. Um, your, everything about you enters the state of, it's a kind of vulnerability in which you are going to be changed by this experience. And studies show that if you recognize that, if you recognize stress or even recognize the post-stress, the rumination, you not being able to sleep at night because you're thinking about what went wrong and what you should have done or why did that happen, all of those things that are part of the stress response after a stressful experience, when you recognize this is my brain trying to learn from this experience, people who take that kind of growth or learning mindset they're more likely to learn things that are useful. They're more likely to learn resilience from something traumatic. They're more likely to learn that they are stronger than they thought they were. They're more likely to learn who they can count on and strengthen relationships and other things that we could learn from stress that we don't always learn from stress if we're immediately trying to sort of move on or get past it. Yeah, I, I mean, even in the weeks since I've been reading your book, things got really ramped up for me and, you know, getting ready for my book to come out. And I remember thinking to myself on more than one occasion, oh, this is, it's all good. My body <laughs> steps up to help me with stress. And it does. Like your book helped me reframe a really busy, chaotic time as, oh, yeah, I kind of step things up a notch when, when this is happening. And it just it was very small, but a really perceptible shift. And I think it's so great to be able to acknowledge that that is one possibility. And I also, I heard the podcast you did where you talked about your experience with vertigo and that was yes. sort of the flip side. <laughs> Sometimes your body is going to give you some other signals that tell you to slow down. And I feel like it's really important to, um, to understand that both are opportunities to learn from stress that sometimes we really do have the resources we need. And especially if we don't have a choice in the matter, I think it's sometimes we talk about stress reduction or slowing down and simplifying as if we all have a say in what stress we're dealing with at any given moment. 
Like, oh, of course, if I didn't want to, you know, become a caregiver to, uh, you know, an aging or ailing parent, I could just choose not to do that. I could just choose not to have reorganization at work or get fired. I could just choose not to have my own health crisis. Like we don't always get to choose the stress in our lives. And I think in particular, when we, when we aren't um, dealing with like a stressful hobby or you know, situations that we have control over, mm. it's really important to understand that, yeah, you can rely on yourself and you can rely on your community um, and to trust that process rather than assume that because you are unable to control the stress in your life, that you have no resources and that there's going to be no way to get through this. But I think, you know, the flip side is true too. When we do have more control, it's really important to listen to signals about whether or not the stress that we're choosing is creating meaning, is creating joy, is strengthening us in a way that we value, or if we've made choices that are creating the kind of stress that is more toxic than it is uh, supportive. And then we can, you know, then we can think about simplifying or changing, changing paths. Something you said earlier really stuck out, which is around loneliness and that it's like hunger. And, and it goes, for me, it, it stood out because you also cite some of the news study, like kind of news reports in recent years that stress is contagious. Yes. And oh, for me, no. Yeah. Like for me, when I'm stressed or even grieving or sad, I feel that I'm contagious and I almost need to like contain the virus. And and I know, and that's not what you say to do. (laughs) Yeah, so let's talk about that. Okay, so first of all, it is true that we catch the emotions of others and we catch the physiology of others. And it is most true for people we care about. And that is the biological basis for empathy and for compassion and for strengthening relationships. The only people who do not who are not susceptible in that way, who are not, um, who do not catch things like a stress response or sadness or anger. It, they're sociopaths, literally psychopaths. Mm-hmm. Like that is the defining feature of a psychopath is not having a social stress response. And I think it's really important to understand that our ability to be open, not just to our own stress, but to the stress and suffering of others is actually the most important catalyst for experiencing the positive social emotions that are an incredible source of resilience. So if you think that you need to defend yourself against other people's stress or suffering or pain, it means you're not going to get the same boost of positive pro-social emotions like compassion, caring, love, connection even contagious joy, sympathetic joy, where we can take pleasure and celebrate in the well-being or success of others, that we, we need to let ourselves get infected in that way. And oftentimes people don't want to be a burden. They think that by being transparent about their own problems, they're just, they're just being a burden or a negative influence. And the thing that's so important to understand is that if you ask people when they feel most on purpose, when they feel the most meaning in their lives, most people will tell you it has something to do with being able to help others. And we are depriving the people in our lives from that experience if we think it's not okay to tell them when we're suffering. This was actually one of the things that this book helped me with the most. I would say that some of the stuff I'd figured out on my own along the way you know, how to deal with anxiety. Um, but this book, it really was a huge wake up call for me myself that, uh, by not being transparent, by not asking for help, by not letting others give me compassion, that, uh, I was really 
not serving my relationships and my community, that it was really important. And it was, it's a gift to others to let people see you as vulnerable and to be able to be the ones who help you, not just the one who is, who is helped by you. I was going to say that writing this book is like the ultimate mindset intervention for yourself. I know. Isn't that why we write books? Don't you write books that are sort of always it's, and it's, it's a, it's a joint process, right? Because I wouldn't want to write the book. Like it's like Brene Brown says, you teach from your scars, not from your wounds. Mm, And so I often will spend, you know, many years where my primary teaching focus is a particular topic before I jump in and write a book about it. And often before I taught it for several years, I was really exploring it in my own life. And, and I was, I've been exploring my stress mindset probably since um, 2000 when I first started to seriously study uh, mindfulness and compassion meditation, both as a researcher and as a, a human being, as a practitioner. So it's been percolating, but I will say that the universe has a wonderful sense of humor. And uh, while I was writing this book, uh, a number of things happened in my life that that were basically like, oh yeah, you think mm. stress is a good thing? Have this stressful experience. See what this is like. Prove it. Prove that this stuff works. Prove it in your own life. And um, I think that was a gift because I did have to test it out. And um, not just with my students, but with myself. So uh, that was an interesting experience. And it was useful. To, it was very useful to be writing that, particularly that chapter about the importance of reaching out of, uh, of understanding that a lot of stress is bigger than self. And you can have a, a, like a can do attitude for some kinds of stress and do it. And other types of stress, you are going to have to rely on something bigger than yourself and to trust that your, your body and your brain are going to push you in that direction. And if you listen to it, that, that there are small steps you can take that really activate your bigger than self resources, whether it's faith, whether it's meaning and values, whether it's your family or your friends or your community. So what would you say you did differently or how you reached out or handled things differently when these things started to hit during writing the book and then even after? Yeah. I mean, like just so one example, I can think of one thing that was going on while I was writing the book. So I think, you know, cause my first book was about chronic pain uh, I've suffered from chronic pain since I was a child, but it's been, it's like a very familiar kind of pain where I've learned how to navigate it. There's like a space for that kind of pain and it's okay if that pain is there. Uh, and then while I was writing the book, I got a new form of, uh, my usual pain is related to headaches, a new kind of, um, facial pain that was so much worse than it was just, it was like new pain is different because you don't have the same space for it or relationship for it. So I was dealing with that and, you know, doing the MRIs and the, the scans and the going to specialists and nobody can explain it. And like, if you suffer from chronic pain, this is a familiar process. Nobody can ever explain it. Uh, and it's a really demoralizing process. And I, what I remember is, this is going to sound so silly that this would not have been my instinct, but I remember actually talking to my sister about it. I usually like think nobody wants to hear about this. Everybody knows I'm in pain all the time. Mm. And I remember sitting on a bench with my sister and just talking about it. And she was very empathic. And it just struck me like why I was doing it because I'd been writing about how important it was to do it. And I was writing about why it's sometimes difficult to acknowledge your own suffering and reach out for help. 
And uh, that I just remember that moment on the bench feeling really hopeful and then going off to another medical appointment and just small things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that's an example. Well, health concerns and then grieving loss. I mean, there's so many other types of trauma that, like you said earlier, and you say in the book, and I think it's such an important note, which is that we would never choose these things. It's not that, oh, we should just love all stress equally, and that's great. No, we're not saying that you would ever wish this upon yourself or a friend but, or a family member, but that when it shows up, here are some some positive things to help you through it when you're yeah. ready, when you're even ready yeah. for that. And I think one of the reasons, so one of the ways that we can come to this mindset is also to recognize that stress is not the situation. So stress is what arises in you and in your community when something you care about is at stake. And that includes your emotions. It includes your physical responses. It includes uh, how communities can suddenly come together for positive action or change or support. It's what arises in those difficult moments. So when I talk about the upside of stress and how to get good at stress, I'm not talking about the upside of bad things. I'm not talking about the upside of trauma, the upside in in the sense that we should go out and suffer because there's something good about the circumstances. What I'm trying to draw people's attention to is the good that gets activated in us as human beings and in within communities when difficult things happen. And I think that's a hard thing for a lot of people to hear because even just like the title of the book can be so triggering. Like, are you telling me I should be grateful for the fact that I just experienced this loss? No, you should not be grateful, but you should be grateful to your own strength. If you can witness that, you should be grateful to people who support you through it. You, you can find gratitude that's not gratitude for the loss. And that's really what the mindset in this book is about. It's about how to recognize and then harness these natural capacities we have as humans to um, respond to difficulty and to stop thinking that, that we as human beings have such a limited capacity to deal with difficulty. I don't know why science got so divorced from contemplative and religious and philosophical traditions. Almost any wisdom tradition you go to recognizes a lot of these human strengths. And for a while, science kind of was like, I don't know, they were maybe just studying rat, um, lab rats too much. They didn't get to witness the great human capacity for making meaning that Viktor Frankl wrote about. Uh, and yet I think when you really pay direct attention to the experience of stress, if you're able to pay attention to these capacities we have to grow, to connect, to make meaning, to rise to the challenge, it becomes quite evident that it's not useful to think about stress as this debilitating, destructive response that we should be trying to just calm down whenever we sense it arising. It is. I wonder why though, it is interesting that we still reject it. Like even you and I can say, we can look back back on tough times. I know, but then we wouldn't even have books to write, but yet still I'm like, Oh, I hope everything stays pretty cool for the next little while. So one of the ways that I often end my (laughs) keynotes on this topic is I ask people the question, do you hope tomorrow is stressful? Because I feel like that really gets at the heart of this paradox, that it makes complete sense to want tomorrow to be full of joy and ease. And at the same time, it is completely possible when tomorrow is stressful to think, okay, I can handle this. 
Think about what you care about, what your values are. Think about choices you can make that get you closer to who and what you care about. Think about calling on higher resources. That both can be true at the same time. And it's actually a mistake to think that the ideal life is stress-free, even if we are deeply committed to trying to reduce the suffering in the world. I think that's probably part of your mission. I'm sure no matter what people do who are listening to this, many of them will have as part of their mission the desire to help people thrive and reduce the pain and suffering that people experience. And what I'm saying is it's actually possible for both to be true. You can be out there trying to relieve the seeds and causes of stress and suffering and at the same time believe it's possible to transform stress and suffering into something that we value. Mm-hmm. I, I think one of the biggest skills, and I didn't make this up, I mean, I'm not the first to say it, but a human trait is being able to hold a paradox and I accept know. that and live with it. And not have your head explode. I know. That's, that's <laughs> right, right. Not chase your tail. I know one thing you're really passionate about is group fitness. How, yes. how does that play a role here? And for you personally, how has that helped you manage stress? Yeah. So, well, it's, so it's interesting. How does it help me manage stress? Um, I know. As I said it, I'm like, oh, I don't know if that's the right lingo. <laughs> I love I love an introduction. People often be like, and now Kelly is here to teach us all how to reduce and avoid stress. And I'm like, oh, okay. I know who didn't read my book. Yeah. Right. As I said it, I was like, shoot, there was a better way to phrase that. <laughs> I'd but, love but, to but hear. What's interesting is, so I know for a lot of people, exercise is sort of a stress management tool. But for me, it's just something else. I believe that people are born with um, just a natural, like there are certain things that when they're in that environment or they're in that activity or in a certain role, it's like their best self comes forward. That, that somehow, and like part of our job in life is to figure out where are those environments? What are those activities where our heart sings and we have something to offer and we experience a true sense of being at home and being alive? And it's, people find this hard to believe, but like that for me has been group exercise since I was in third grade when I first like started discovering uh, old school aerobics, the kind of, you know, people who were around in the early eighties remember. Um, And so in a way, I, I don't even think of it as being about reducing stress or something for me about being with a group of people moving in synchrony to music that is uplifting and empowering and the content of the movement. You know, I teach yoga, but I also teach um, mixed martial arts and I teach dance and I've taught in the past strength and um each one of these movement forms, it like connects to a certain aspect of the personality that you can feel fierce and strong and powerful, that in dance, you can express your emotions, all of your emotions, the difficult ones and the joyful ones. And that's what I experience in group fitness, that it's, it's like power posing for 60 minutes, that you are doing movements and gestures to music that feeds your soul and you're doing it in community. I can like think of nothing more wonderful than that. And to be able to teach it is when I feel like I, I still remember the first time I taught a dance class. And I remember afterwards thinking like, wow, I was born to do that. Wow. And it's not all I was born to do, but it's certainly if you were, you know, in those moments, uh, yeah, I have no doubt that that's part of what I was born to do. So for me, part of it is I don't know the group fitness is for everyone. Uh, but the reason, one of the reasons I'm so passionate about it is because it feeds me in that way. And I, I actually, and so when I teach it, I, I look for ways, 
I look for the people for whom that's going to be true too. As soon as I can see it, like the people who have a better than they expected experience. And you can see it because what they're responding to is like the synchrony. When we're stepping and we're clapping, you'll Mm -hmm. see some faces light up more than others when they realize they're clapping together as a group. And those are the people I know, like pay attention to them, uh, learn their names, because these are people who are going to get something out of this experience that is a lot more important than a tight butt. (laughs) That's, that's amazing. <laughs> like, that's not what I'm thinking about as I'm teaching. Right. <laughs> what kind of dance classes do you teach? Right now I'm teaching something called Dance Jam, which is sort of like all styles mashed up oh, from modern so dance. It's sort of like, like, so you think you can dance as a dance class. Uh, but I also teach Zumba. What? I do. I'm McGonagall. Either get back to New York right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. The next time I'm in the Bay Area, I'm taking your dance class if I yes, can. please do. <laughs> I used to take hip hop class and I started as an adult and really I'm kick, I kick myself because I should be doing it. I love it. Mm. It's so fun. And I've done yoga a long time, just like you. And you're right. I think there's something to also having a, I think what's nice about group fitness is the idea of being led that surrendering to the teacher, to the music, to the movement. And I don't have to be in control. Yes. Unless you have a voice in your head that's arguing the whole time, which is like that happens too. <laughs> one of the things I used to love to talk with my yoga students about is like, like I see you looking at the clock or like, I, like it's, it's so funny how often even the things that bring us great joy, it's such a powerful uh, habit of the mind to be trying to improve the experience or immediately be like trying to end the experience prematurely, no matter how much you like, like, oh, I was looking to yoga all day. And now that I'm in it, it's like, when Shavasana coming so that I can leave? Um, I love exploring even like that side of it too. Um, because in part, it's a skill to surrender. The, the yeah. experience invites you to do it, but there has to be some willingness involved. <laughs> well, I also, maybe this is my own mindset intervention for people who are new to yoga or even Pilates, where I'll say, don't even try and eliminate feeling bored. If you, someone said to me the other day, oh, I just hate Pilates. I said, <laughs> that's fine, but do it anyway, because you'll be amazed at the results. Like it, I, There's I, a lot of different payoffs. Favorite, but yeah. It's not always in the moment pleasure. Right. And, and that's, that's part of the upside of stress is if we are only seeking moments of hedonic pleasure and ease, we miss out on a lot of the payoff that comes from having done something that's a little bit uncomfortable or new or difficult and challenging. And so sometimes the payoff is afterwards like, wow, I not only did I survive that, like I feel really good about myself that I did that, even though in the actual moment, the voice in my head was like, how do I get out of here? Right. Why did I do this? Yeah. What about the importance of music? Because I've never really, I haven't read a lot about it, but I'm wondering if with your group fitness passion, seems like music plays a big role as well in music joy. It it does. Well, it plays a big role for me in life. I I feel like my life has a soundtrack there. Every activity has its own sort of musical style that goes along with it. I don't know if you, when, when I write books, I don't know if you write books to music. I have a book writing playlist that um, drives other people crazy. It drives my husband crazy because it involves mostly um, electronic dance music remixes of holiday (laughs) music. Oh my God, that's amazing. So it's pretty cuckoo stuff. And if I'm writing a book in July and it's the ninth remix of Winter Wonderland, like a jazz remix of Winter Wonderland, (laughs) my husband is like, oh my gosh. Um, but, but, uh, yeah, music, there's so much research on this and it, 
athletes know this really well. You know, athletes understand that you listen to certain types of music to put yourself in a certain state of mind and to connect to something that feels bigger than yourself and to unleash the energy that's available to you. I'm like, why not do that your whole life? Right. Why not think about the music that helps you connect to meaning and purpose and community? Um, and uh, one of my one of my Zumba students was telling me recently, she showed me on her phone, she has a playlist that she calls my theme songs, which are songs from Zumba class that she associates with feeling certain ways in Zumba class, like feeling powerful or feeling connected. The song that's a song of celebration, but she calls them her theme songs. So she can choose to listen to them when she wants to feel that way. Um, and I, I really endorse that. I love that. I have to know why EDM remixes of <laughs> holiday music in particular. What is it about that that gets you in the zone? You know, it started out with a couple of albums. Well, one thing is um, dance music is for me, that's dance music and jazz are the two forms of music that my heart loves the most. And uh, a lot of the remixes I listen to are like jazzy drum and bass remixes. But it started with two albums that just had a feeling to them. One, if anyone's interested, it was a uh, reindeer room, chill it out Christmas. And the other is home for the holidays by Ohm records, which is a wonderful label in the Bay area that does great uh, house music. And these two albums, there's just something about them that felt really hopeful. And, uh, I don't, I love music that has a quality of nostalgia to it. My other favorite album, um, blue train by John Coltrane, there's something about music that feels both sad and happy and joyous at the same time that has a particular, there's a, it's, it's like you're nostalgic even as you're listening to it. Uh, there's a, like a poignancy to it. And there, for whatever reason, these holiday albums made me feel that way. Um, I was like nostalgic for them as I was listening to them. And uh, I think that that emotional quality is really important for me when I write books because what I'm hoping to do when I write books is not to entertain people. I'm not that kind of writer. I'm not that like skilled in prose. I'm not going to just, you know, fascinate people with great stories the way someone like Charles Duhigg might or, or Mary Roach, you know, she's a great comedian. Uh, what I'm hoping to do when I write is I want to say something that's going to linger with people and hopefully be available to them in moments that are difficult. I try to convey a certain feeling of possibility. And so I like to listen to music that for me, it has that kind of attitude to it. Um, and I feel like maybe if I were listening to something else, it would come out, it would come out in my work. I don't know if you can relate to this, but I admire um, wonder, like, amazing musicians so much and the power. Mm -hmm. So I have a friend who makes fun of me because I like emo songs, <laughs> have a lot of emotion, but um, my vehicle to do that like you is through books, but not, I don't have flowery prose either. I once, my friend, I asked her, if your writing were a food, what would it be? And I told her, mine's a salad. It's like not the most delicious or rich. It's just chopped up, practical, good for you. Um, so now naturally I have to ask you, so if your writing were a food, what would it be? That's so interesting. My first thought was a bowl of oatmeal. <laughs> That's very appealing. I think about because what I thought is like, what do I love holding in my hands and smelling and then eating? Oh. For me, you know, oatmeal with cinnamon and ginger and pumpkin. Um, but I don't know that people feel that way when they read my book. That's like that seems awfully aspirational well, to be like held in comfort because I'm not sure I'm that kind of writer either. 
Um, that would be like the, that would be the ideal. I hope someday to write a book that makes people feel held in comfort. I absolutely think that you do 100%. Part of what's funny about that question is people also tend to give self-depreciating answers because it's a bunch of writers. <laughs> so, you know, it's like oatmeal, a salad. My friend Julie, she's like, mine's Brussels sprouts. Because you, you don't expect to like it, but it has bits of bacon every now and then. <laughs> well, you know what's but, interesting? Um, so you mentioned self-deprecating answers. And one of the things yeah. that I've been talking with people about a lot lately is the tragic gap, which is the space between your ideals and what's real. And how important it is to just surrender and accept the tragic gap that the more you care, the more tragedy you're going to (laughs) feel that it's not that the gap is bigger. It's that it's going to hit you harder and there's going to be such a desire to offer yourself and to serve and to contribute. And then there's going to be the reality of, you know, of, of what life is like as someone who's, who is trying, who's doing their best. And, um, to even like use the tragic gap as a kind of stress that could point you back to what you care about instead of viewing it as a sign that you ought to give up. Mm -hmm. That's a tough one. I mean, I shared on a podcast, there was a point where I felt like I'm too sensitive for my own life. Life is too overwhelming. But on the other side, it's, oh, I have a lot of empathy. Oh, I care. You know, it reminds me what you just said of the Shambhala book by Chagyam Tropa, who says it's like bravery is is on the razor's edge of heartbreak. Yeah. And it's just being willing to be there and keep going. Yeah. And that's, of course, that's the other side of my work, the work that we do at the Center for Compassion and Altruism. It's based on Tibetan practices of of courage and compassion cultivation. Um, And so that is definitely, that is an attitude that has served me very well. And even when I'm writing science books, that's really like, that's what the message actually is. I'm just Mm. telling you about the science that supports it. I'm so glad you brought this up too, because even working on a big project like a book, you and I were talking before we hit record, once you hit ship, for me, I'm experiencing it now where I'm like, oh, there's so much more I could have said or changed, or this isn't perfect, or I would have done this. It's like, I got to just let it go. Now I have a name for it, the tragic gap. And tragic gap. You know, when we care about stuff, it's going to be there. Yep. And that's, and it, you know, and also in different stages of, of book promotion and, and publication, the thing that, that sustains me is sort of the long tail of emails from people. I have gotten some emails from readers for this last book that have had me weeping because mm-hmm. I could not have imagined a particular kind of a particular reader with a particular need and that I could meet that need in such a profound way for someone who's suffering deeply in that moment, that sustains me in, in the, you know, in what is a sense of a huge tragic gap. And so much I wish I could have done with this book that I, I was unable to do in the space and the time and, and my skill and my talent. I want to actually, so that's actually something to those of you who are listening, who view yourself more as readers than as writers, you should actually know what a difference it makes when you reach out to a writer. Um, it really matters because writers get a lot of unfriendly emails also, <laughs> a lot of cranky <laughs> emails. That's a big part of the tragic gap too. The antidote to the tragic gap is something you share in the upside of stress, which is connecting to the meaning and purpose. It's yeah. why, why did I undertake this? Because it's meaningful and I hope to help people. And I know that's why you write your books. That's why I write mine. And that, as you just said, getting emails from people reaffirms 
the true purpose. It's not about making money. It's not about how many books are sold. It's connection. Yeah, I think if you get into the the business of writing books to compete in that way, I, I can imagine few things that would be more sort of isolating and demoralizing. It has to be about imagining the reader. Kelly, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Your books are indeed a comforting <laughs> and nutritious bowl of oatmeal. I learn so much every time. We, we'll put that on the next jacket, book jacket. That'll be your blurb. <laughs> yeah. And I have to ask you for a blurb. Like, remember the Perfect. bowl of oatmeal? <clears throat> Done. With pumpkin and, yeah, and all the goodies. <laughs> and then, it's funny, I already was creating a pivot playlist that I, I might release as yes. a pre-order bonus. Because I've done playlists every quarter of my life since I was in middle school. Whether First it was on cassette tapes, then CDs, now on Spotify. So and do I'm you go you. back and listen to them? Oh, it's a trip. And I try not to over go back because when I drop back in, it's so powerful mm-hmm, that mm-hmm, these songs mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. archive my life. And especially as you know, because you split time and live in New York, while I'm working on the book, walking down the street, listening to the same songs over and over, but only for a period of like three months. It's just so crazy how it locks in what was going on at that time. Yep. It gives you that embodied memory. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to try and find the albums you link to, and I'll try and link to those in the show notes too. (laughs) Okay, great. And where else can people find you if they want to connect and keep in touch? Uh, You know, I'm pretty active on Twitter and everything is just under my name, my website, Facebook, Twitter. It's, it's Kelly McGonigal. Awesome. Kelly, thank you so much. And big thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Pivot Podcast. To learn more and get in touch, visit JennyBlake.me, where I blog about systems at the intersection of mind, body, and business. Or find me on Twitter at Jenny underscore Blake. And remember, build first, then your courage will follow. Hasn't it always? <laughs>